and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined remotely in the studio, well, they're in the studio, I'm not in the studio, by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. Okay, so before I talk about the show that we have today, I should probably also explain some changes at the radio show. Tell us why you're um, so far away. Yeah. Why are you calling in remotely? Why are we all together? Yes. Because we are confused. I'm call- <laughs> so yeah, so I'm calling in remotely, um, but still in Southern California, because I'm going to be stepping back a little bit from the radio show to kind of pursue some other opportunities and tackle some other stuff. So I'll be um, a contributing host and kind of joining Medea and Kate on a couple of episodes uh, here and there moving forward. So not a regular part of the program, but still very much part of it. Mm. Yeah, this is very sad for us. But it's good news that you will be joining us and it's not goodbye to either us or the listeners. I could never say goodbye to Medea or Kate. (laughs) That's true. And we could never say goodbye to you. And you are staying on as the gender and sexuality editor at LARB. Yes, still the gender and sexuality editor. So if anybody has any gender and sexuality things to discuss with anyone, it should be with you. (laughs) Well, that sounds maybe like maddeningly open-ended, but sure, yeah, if you have gender and sexuality questions I have some questions for you, Eric, but we can talk after this. I have a lot of things I want to ask you about. Sounds great. Okay. The phone lines are open. (laughs) Okay. Okay, well, should we introduce the show? Yeah. So what we have for this week is a conversation that Kate and I had with Lyra Kilston, uh, who's the author of Sunseekers, The Cure of California, which is a kind of, it's like a weird, I mean, Kate, you can describe it too. It's like a, a weird photo essay and history of various people who came to California seeking basically much lauded and mythologized health benefits associated with being in California. And then it ends up being a really cool kind of swim through architecture in California and how architecture and this idea of California as this healthful place kind of blended around, I believe it's the late 19th century through the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So I just loved it. Yeah. It's about the influence of, of health and actually disease prevention on modern architecture specifically the Southern California variety. And there are a lot of great pictures, which is true, which we unfortunately can't see on the radio, but maybe we could link to on on the website. And yeah, this is a breezy, delightful history of a fairly niche topic. Lots of stuff about tuberculosis. If you're interested exactly. in tuberculosis, I think we talk about that on this but episode. But it is, it is mind-blowing how much this one thing seems to have had an effect on what is this iconic type of architecture in in California. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, should we get to that show? Yes. Let's do it. We're excited to have Lyra Kilston in the studio with us today. Lyra is a writer and editor whose work centers on architecture, history, design, and urbanism. Her writing and criticism has appeared in Art Forum, Los Angeles Review of Books, Time, Wired, and Hyperallergic, among other publications. She joins us today to talk about her new book, Sunseekers, The Cure of California. 
which looks at the fascinating history of California as a beacon for those wanting to improve their bodies and, through a combination of design aesthetics and lifestyle choices, their lives and maybe ultimately the world. What I love about this book is the way in which Lyra traces the history of the quote-unquote California cure from European-styled sanatoriums in the mid-19th century that suddenly started dotting our coasts, and then finally looking at how the region's reputation for good living influenced modern architecture, culture, and life through the mid-20th century in ways that still reverberate for us today in the new millennium. Welcome to the show, Lyra. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So just a simple question. Can you just tell us how you got started on this really kooky and fun project? Well, sure. I think that the, you know, the book is divided into three parts and they work together, but they all sort of stand alone. And I wrote it as three different essays. Mm. But the last part focuses on the nature boys, which were these sort of proto hippies that were running around eating raw fruits and vegetables and sleeping in sleeping bags in the Hollywood Hills. And I came across a photograph of them, I think about maybe nine years ago now. Mm. And when I first saw it, I thought, oh, these are some California hippies. You know, it's probably 1968 or whatever. And then I saw the date and it was 1948. And that just really threw me for a loop. And mm -hmm. it started, I ended up writing and researching them and writing an essay that got published in a magazine back in around 2013, I think. So that's sort of what started me down this path. Okay. But then bringing in the other elements, I had been doing research on Southern California architecture at the Getty Research Institute. And that's where I learned first about Richard Neutra's Health House. And all of the books that talk about it, they might devote a paragraph or two to the client, Philip Lovell, as mm. a, you know, kind of a kooky naturopathic doctor who wrote for the LA Times. But I, from the very first time I read that, I thought, I want to know more about that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so there was that desire to know more that I knew that that was a good story that I wanted to dig into at some point. And then I also heard about a lecture series at the Gamble House. Mm -hmm. They were doing a couple of years ago on some of the early health seekers in Pasadena and Altadena. And they had some people talk because the Gamble House has sleeping porches. Right. Right. Yeah. It was a great lecture series because the lectures were actually held on the sleeping porch. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> no, something I wanted to, yeah, there's so much there and it's so fascinating. But because you mentioned the sleeping porch, maybe we could start with where your book starts, which is, you know, lots of people came to California initially seeking a cure from tuberculosis. Right. Tuberculosis as a driver of modernism is kind of a theme in this book. And I didn't realize how much this disease just played a part in so much. And you talk about it as one of the elements of modern architecture is this fear of disease. I'd like to get back to that. But anyways, so people came to California because at the time, late 19th century, you say up to 90% of people living in cities had tuberculosis. Yes, they were at least carrying it. Oh, carrying it. Mm -hmm. So how did they imagine that California would cure them? And was there any truth to that claim? I mean, did people heal from tuberculosis here in California? There had been like public health surveys that determined that the incidence of tuberculosis was definitely higher in crowded living conditions. Mm -hmm. And people started, there was this entire field of medicine that they called, I think, medico-geographic study which sounds very bizarre to us, but doctors were really paying very close attention to what different kinds of climates 
how that impacted health. And so people were doing medico-geographic surveys around the United States and in Europe as well, and coming up with statistics that said that, you know, people in the north tended to have a higher incidence of disease, people that lived in, again, crowded cities. And they would find these places where people lived in maybe small villages or farther away from each other, so there was less contagion, but also in warmer places. But they would simply report back that there's just far fewer cases of tuberculosis in places like this. Mm-hmm. So at the time, conventional medicine just had no real way of dealing with tuberculosis. They just, I mean, nobody did until we got antibiotics, mm-hmm. right, in the 1950s. So the kinds of ways that doctors had to treat this was there was bed rest, there was leeches, there was like drinking mercury. I mean, all of these really harmful things. And you could go to be, it was just as likely that going to the doctor would kill you as not (laughs) going to the doctor. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this idea of, you know, the city is hurting you and this cold, damp climate is making your lungs. There was a sense that your lungs are like filled with fluid. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because you live, you know, you're in this place where it rains and snows all the time. What if you went to a place where you could be dried out? And so doctors were actually prescribing patients to travel in order to save their lives. So you go from this medical story to a kind of medical architectural story. So can you talk about the design of these sanatoriums? I have to keep reminding myself that it's not a sanitarium. It's where you go to get your body cleaned, not your mind. Right. Can you talk about how they were designed? Because they have a kind of European aesthetic, but then they start to become their own thing. Yes. So sanatoriums were started in 1850s in the mountains of Europe, and they Mm -hmm. were very much in sync with ideas of nature cures. So besides leaving the disease-ridden city for the country, you would also be, you would have this really strict regimen about what you were allowed to eat Mm -hmm. and how much you could sleep and what kind of exercise you got and how much exposure you had to the sun every day. But in the beginning, they were built, the buildings themselves were similar to like what we think of of like lavish European hotels, Mm. you know, like thick walls and lots of decoration and kind of like luxury places. And then little by little, doctors, what was so fascinating to me was that there was this partnership between the doctor and the architect Mm. or the public health official and a bunch of architects. Mm -hmm. And they were working in tandem in a way that you just... I don't think we've seen that since. Maybe we should more, but it was very unique. And so as doctors were getting more and more into prescribing things like fresh air and sunlight and so on, they realized that having these patients sit in these confined spaces with these long hallways and, Mm. and thick curtains and thick carpets and all of these kinds of markers of luxury and the way architecture had been for a long time was actually counter you know, intuitive to the kinds of, to the actual exposure to nature Mm -hmm. that they wanted. So they started making windows bigger. They started emphasizing balconies and terraces. If you wanted a bedridden patient to be able to go out and get total exposure to fresh air and sunshine, you needed to invent all of these things. You needed to invent beds with wheels and you needed to Mm -hmm. create like French doors or the kinds of windows that would open right onto a balcony so that you could just be wheeled out every day, get your six hours of sun and fresh air for your cure be wheeled back in. So it began to slowly impact the way that people were building. And it was both these big, lavish sanatoriums Mm -hmm. and also sometimes these very small, almost like DIY kits that were being sold also. (laughs) There were shacks that there would be screened sides to them. So it wasn't only this like wealthy ill tourist sort of thing. Right. And then there were even, you know, things that you could order from a catalog. Like a craftsman home, but like a health home. 
that you could set up yourself? Not a whole home necessarily, okay. but like a little kiosk, something you could put maybe on like the rooftop of your apartment building. Like I there's see. this crazy photo of a woman like just in a little tent <laughs> on the rooftop of an apartment building in Chicago in the snow. But she was there because it was the fresh air. Oh, the fresh air. Yeah. Or they had like window tents so that you could your head could stick out of your window from your apartment building, mm. but there would be sort of a box, a screened box around you, whereas the rest of your body would be inside staying warm. So there were all of these very interesting things that ended up modifying the structure of buildings and the design of rooms and so on, so that you could have just this constant exposure to these healing elements. And as you were doing this research, I'm wondering like how much some of these designs struck you as innovative. I mean, because looking back at like bungalow houses, that mm-hmm. to me is just really brilliant architecture. And it's still living in a house that, you know, has that plan. I think this was just great design. Mm-hmm. So how much did you look at some of these ideas as, as like, oh, this would be a good innovation even now, or just they seemed like kind of absurd to you, quackery? I mean, there's an element of quackery in a lot of what you write about yes. that you know these that almost that sick people were preyed upon in some sense because yes. there wasn't necessarily a cure to tuberculosis so a lot of these things were like a architectural version of leeches or something right uh-huh. <laughs> right definitely yeah so some of them definitely seemed a little bit absurd like i don't know how much it would actually improve your health to have your head sticking out of your apartment window at night especially if you're living in a pollution-ridden city. Or in Chicago in the middle of the winter. Right. That seems like a bad idea. Right. But then other things, you know, I think that the resistance to really thick carpeting and curtains and just sort of this fussy tons of pillows and velvet and brocade and that kind of thing, the idea that if you reduce some of that, and this is, you know, getting towards like minimalism, that a more hygienic interior makes a lot of sense. And so maybe you could talk about how some of these ideas started to grow into like a modernist design aesthetic and how that came to Cal. I was also struck in this book. It just seems like California is just so much about an imprint of European innovation and ideas. The way you trace it so closely back yeah. to Europe and mm-hmm. European modernism and those kind of things. So tell us about how those sleek aesthetics flourished in Southern California. I mean, really, with that, the story would be with, I think, the arrival of Schindler and Neutra, who were exporting European modernism that they knew here. They both worked for Frank Lloyd Wright, and they both ended up in Los Angeles and were very excited about the opportunity to create. They felt like it was this blank slate where they could create this totally new kind of architecture, but they had been, of course, trained in this this kind of like proto-modernist school in Vienna which was beginning to really reject any kind of unnecessary ornamentation. And they were in school in like the 19, right before World War I Mm. together. And that's how they met. And this was sort of in the air, like regardless of health, the seeds of modernism had been planted and there was a lot of manifestos and screeds against ornamentation and, and about this like a new kind of human needed a new kind of living. Well, and the most, uh, probably the most iconic of these is Le Corbusier's statement that it's like houses should be a machine for modern living. Right. right? That it was like specifically about efficiency and what life should be like now. Right. Yes. So those things were all happening. And it's this, the story that it's being linked to hygiene was something that I heard about because of the work of this architectural historian, Beatrice Colomina, and where she got her source material was from the, you know, there were just a lot of books being, not a lot, but, you know, in this tiny circle of like architectural theory in Germany in the 1920s, people were really 
it was the the nature cure in combination with this desire to reduce forms to their like simplest possible um, manifestation and people would write these like really heroic books about terraces for example Mm. or you know there was just this idea of like the new human needed light and they needed air and they needed nature and they needed a house that gave them that was just this sort of clean minimalist frame that enabled themselves that enabled them to have access to all of these things Mm. so there's these really interesting and one of these books were was actually just reissued and translated for the first time and there were these very interesting books and I think that's where she started putting together this notion and you know but things like making you know you think of like a modernist house and it's like giant glass walls and like a very white square interior Mm -hmm. you know but like the white had a lot to do with seeing dirt you know it was like it was like this clinic it was it was supposed to be um, a house for health or you know hygiene and and like just both physical and kind of mental you know um, a place to sort of like remake yourself if that's what you're trying to do and seize the new century and seize the new technology and so on. But also at the same time, you know, you want to, you want surfaces that are really easy to clean mm-hmm. and that don't encourage contagion. And you want huge glass windows to let in as much light as possible. And there are these amazing kind of propaganda films um, from the 20s also that show the sort of like the fussy houses like of your parents' generation where there's knickknacks everywhere and doilies on every chair <laughs> and you can't walk through the room. You can't walk through the dim room without knocking into some like ridiculous statuette that shouldn't be there in the first place. But then there's like the new way of living, which is all of which is just this, you know, what we think of as kind of almost sterile modern housing. Yeah. And and sterile, this sterile is the is the point, right? right? Yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Lyra Kilston, author of Sunseekers: The Cure of California. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. have Hanif Abdurraqib here to do a book recommendation. Hanif, what book are you going to recommend? It's called A Jazz Funeral for Uncle Tom. And it's this book of poems that intersperses like visuals along with the text. And the poems are like my kind of poems, which means they're steeped in history. And also like punctuation is optional and they're like really flowy and beautiful and i've been a fan of harmony's work for a long time but it feels like this book's new i think it's just came out this book feels like the real culmination of all the work that harmony's been doing and it was exciting for me you know like i've been thinking more about poems because i'm ramping up for like a poetry book release so i've been immersing myself in poems more and this book like really opened up and unlocked a lot of things for me can i ask you how do you read poetry when you read it how do I read poetry? Yeah, like, do you sit down? I'm just always curious as to how a person sits down with a collection of poetry, especially if it is, you said, like, this is, like, the kind of poetry I like to read. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to read poetry books slower. I used to, like, read them in one sitting because I would fly so much. I still fly a lot. And I would just, poetry books are kind of easy to digest. Uh-huh. But I would find myself returning to them. You know, I'd read them in, like, a few hours. And then i a couple days later would return to them and read again and read again. And so I've instead attempted to digest the work slower. You know, I think about a book like Ilya's new book, Ilya Kaminsky's new book, Deaf Republic, which really requires, at least for me, it really required a slow approach. 
right, in a slow read. And I am trying to find a way to do that with all poetry books, to honor them by kind of like not sprinting to the finish line. Yeah. Well, that book sounds wonderful. Will you tell us the author name again and the title? Yes. The author is Harmony Holiday, and the title is A Jazz Funeral for Uncle Tom. Great. Thank you so much, Hanif. Thank you for having me again. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Lyra Kilston, author of Sunseekers, The Cure of California. And along these lines, can you talk to us about Neutra's Health House, right, yes. which has this really interesting client? I mean, just to, to draw us back to some of the things that you were talking about before. Sure, sure. So when Neutra came to Los Angeles, he lived with Rudolf Schindler, and he met um, a patron who ended up uh, hiring Neutra to build him his, it, well, his name was Philip Lovell. Mm-hmm. He was a naturopathic doctor, and he had a column in the Los Angeles Times called Care of the Body. It ran in the sun on Sundays. And it had, you know, his various health manifestos. He was a strict vegetarian, and he really believed in the health benefits of nude sunbathing. He was very, very anti-drug and chemical. At that time, naturopathic doctors and other kinds of, of people that practiced what they called eclectic medicine, they were they called themselves drugless practitioners. Okay. And this was like a big banner of pride for them. So he would answer people's letters about, you know, everything from, you know, weight loss to like curing cancer to pain of childbirth, you know, and then but then throw in some like vegan recipes also. Mm-hmm. So his his column was very popular. He lectured around downtown, he published books with his recipes and his advice. And he really, you know, as a doctor that was into these sort of nature cure philosophies, Mm -hmm. he was aware of what was happening in Europe. And he was reading, I think if you were a doctor at that time, and you were reading medical journals, you would you would be I mean, some of those articles would be about architecture, because architecture was really seen as something that could make you sicker or make you healthier. Mm -hmm. So he was aware of this conversation. He had the means, which is Amazing, and he right. um, because he was a he was a popular <laughs> kind of health quack or health nut, and he had the means to commission several houses. Um, I think three by Schindler first, and then this this really major one by Neutra um, that would embody his his health ideas. And so, how does the health house do that? Like, what is it? Is it more of the kind of like clean lines, white? surfaces, those sort of things? Yes. So the health house, it um, it was completed in 1929. It was the f- America's first steel framed house. So that was sort of this, you know, this machine kind of mm. um, thing that was going on with modernism and, and Neutra had been exposed to that in Europe. So that was very significant. But the, the I bring up the steel because this like very lightweight but strong frame enabled just, it enabled these huge expanses of glass that... Um, other kinds of, of structures would it would have been a lot harder. Okay. So yes, so Philip Lovell had a lot of ideas and Neutra was fortunately totally on board. And they built this incredible house. It's up in Griffith Park. It's still there. And what it had was it had a so each bedroom had its own sleeping porch and the idea was that you would never actually sleep inside. Mm-hmm. You would just sleep on these sleeping porches because mm-hmm. why sleep inside? It's less healthy. There was areas for nude sunbathing. The entire outdoors was kind of just this like place for physical activity. You know, he wasn't 
just into like eating healthy. He was definitely into like exercising a lot. He had three sons. They were all very physically active. Mm. And so there was sort of an outdoor gym outside. There was a swimming pool that had no chlorine because he wasn't into the, the, the chemical. Okay. So, which kind of makes sense because I just learned that chlorine had been used as like a poisonous gas during World War One. So. Yes, yeah, chlorine gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can I could see his I could see where his skepticism would be coming from. And then there was also an outdoor schoolroom because his wife Leah was she had studied with progressive educators in New York before, like with the John Dewey method. So she was really into this like learn by doing kind of hands-on outdoor school, which you know you you see that bubbling up in our era as well. Of course. And yeah. you write here that she actually taught with um, Pauline Schindler. Yes. So they had they ran Who an alternative school. Rudolf Schindler's wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the Hollyhock House in Los Amazing. Angeles. So they were they were a, quite an extraordinary couple. Definitely into all kinds of out there ideas. Yeah, that's the um, interesting thing. And you mentioned that when you say you saw the Nature Boy photograph and you thought it must have been from 68 and it was actually from, you know, 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, your final chapter in the book, uh, you describe the life reform movement of Germany. Oh, Leibniz reform. The Leibniz reform movement. Mm-hmm. So and lots of those ideas have some, you know, overlap with been like back to back to the land movement of the late 60s and 70s, um, things that started to catch on in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, you know, later in, in the century. So maybe you could just tell us about that. I just found that such a fascinating turn that you made, you know, talking about this movement in Germany and then how it kind of played out in the United States mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know like, you know, the Schindlers, for instance, and the Neutras, they have they were kind of like proto hippies. Mm. In, in some ways, and they practiced a form of free love, and they were into progressive education and mm-hmm. many other things that we associate with the 60s. So mm-hmm. talk about that and, and how you, you know, decided to, to write about that. Yeah, well, so in researching that photograph that I found of the Nature Boys, I came across this extraordinary and at the time out-of-print book called Children of the Sun, a pictorial anthology from Germany to California, or something like that. Mm. Um, it's by this guy, Gordon Kennedy. He was, he's just sort of a, I think he actually knew some of these guys. He knew okay. like Gypsy Boots, for example. Now he lives out by the Salton Sea. And I think he just has this, he has this archive of photographs and documents. And so he put together this very interesting book that he had done a lot of research talking to people, like historians in Germany about, you know, here we have these, these nature boys. Some of them are German. Um, what's the story? Like, why did they come to California? Why was Germany producing these kinds Mm. of people who wanted to walk, who were vegetarian, who were walking around like nearly naked, who were preaching like this kind of message of love and peace and so on. So that was one of my important sources. And, but, you know, there's a lot about Laban's reform. And it was just this, it was a social movement kind of um, along with the progressive movement that was happening elsewhere, like in England and the United States. So you had people that were very interested in vegetarianism. They were curious about free love. They were interested in, you know, it was a whole span of things. Like maybe they were interested in um, the suffrage movement or alternative ways to raise children or Mm. kind of like living on the land, starting early communes. Um, but a lot of it was a real protest against the way that civilization was going. Mm. So 
That's mostly um, a reaction to World War One or oh no, before oh, that. Okay, before that. Yeah. So this was like late nineteenth century. Okay. And so you had this just like incredible pace of industrialization in the nineteenth century, and then apparently in Germany it was the worst. I mean, people were really just like emptying out of the countryside to go to cities and work in factories, and then yeah. sleep, and then you know sleep in these crowded conditions, and so on. Um, and then Germany at that time, of course, was still like um, a strong, like a colonial power. So, you know, it was mandatory military service. You could get shipped off to any of these like far flung colonies. It was just growing and growing and growing without any kind of end in sight, you know. And so if you were sickened by what your society was doing, you would show your distaste by choosing a lifestyle that just went against all of these things, you know? Now, is it's like this, dropping out. Is this also how we get the... There's another fascinating figure. Um, I think pre-date, I think he's from the 1920s, so he's a little bit earlier than the Nature Boys. But he, Well, he's actually known as the Nature Man, which oh. I assume has to be come, come before the boy. <laughs> uh, William Pester, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, William Pester. Um, who is also German, I think, right? Yes. And has these kind of... One of the beautiful things of kind of the archival materials that you show in the book are these, like, I believe it's a poster that he's created, where he's like... It's a kind of shot from the back image drawing of a nude man standing in front of the sun. And the translated German is basically like, you know, come bathe in like the gorgeous sun and like experience all of this. Um, oh, do you know the, what I'm talking about? Hang on, yeah, that wasn't it. William Pester. That oh, was, not, okay. that was an example of the kind of posters that you just saw in Germany at this time. Oh, from that the, you saw from in, the Germany. in Germany. In Germany, telling you to Germany. come to California. Yeah, this one. Sorry, one. That one. Yeah. yeah. So that this is oh. this is advertising a light and air sports bath for men in Berlin. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it shows the kind of culture that someone like William Pester was coming out of. Right, and he, for example, um, so he's fascinating to me because I love Palm Springs, and so he kind of um, he creates what like a cabin out of palms that yes. he kind of builds for builds for himself, and he becomes an image. If if on the one hand we've been talking about these kind of high modernist kind of architectural feats and like how beautiful these houses are and the simplicity of them, it's like he takes that even a step further to be like, I will literally just create a simple home out of nature right. and live off of the land, and that has its own kind of like. Edenic philosophy to it. So can you talk just a little bit about this is where I think it really gets into like the kooks. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right that there's like the quacks, the quacky doctors, but then Mm -hmm. there's just these like kooks that become iconic in some way of like how this land can restore you. And you talk about his beatific visage and how (laughs) healthy and wonderful he looked, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about like his palm frond as a kind of architecture, but of of course it is. Um, So he left. So he like Several of these guys, I think, they left Germany because of compulsory military service. He had grown up in a coal mining town, so probably he mm. probably was witness to total devastation of nature. Okay. And somehow he came to the United States, you know, I think probably in his, his 20s, and kind of made his way across the country and settled in Palm Canyon outside of Palm Springs. And he, you know, around like before 1915, and he was... Somebody who had really absorbed these tenets of Laban's reform. You know, he never ate meat. He believed in this very simple life. He made his own sandals. He was mostly nude and did a lot of sunbathing and and really felt like the only way to or like the best way to live was to really return to nature because humans and society had gotten so far away from what they were supposed to be doing. Okay. Yeah. There's so much more we could talk about it, but just to kind of wrap it up, it's like, there's a cyclical nature to this idea of 
it seems like in you know in many times California has been sold as this place that can cure you and restore you and um, towards the end of the book you you mentioned that um, now that actually and, and in some ways you know just from some of the these ideas it, it, it makes sense it's not it's not just advertising I mean it is because of the climate if you believe that the sun could heal you, you mm-hmm. know, of course you would want to come to some place where it's sunny 300 days of the year or, or more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it doesn't seem like just a feat of advertising, but at this point, um, it's not the same kind of terrain anymore. I mean, it, it has been industrialized. A lot of the ideas of modernism, you know, become of like this, a small house that can be reproduced anywhere, then become like suburbanism and, um, and have kind of destroyed this pristine landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet in the New York Times and other places, California is still sold as this place that, you know, you say a friend of yours walked off the plane and said, oh, I feel the air like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like <a laughs> healing me now. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, <laughs> thinking like, oh, maybe she wasn't, you know, that's that's that smog just like getting to her head or something. But mm-hmm. um, so how, what do you make of, of that, that kind of continued myth of of California as this, you know, state spa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it fascinating that it's sort of no matter how much it changes and how unaffordable it becomes or how polluted it becomes or so on, there's this this constant the, the fascination doesn't seem to go away. I mean, there's it probably ebbs and flows, and I think that right now we're we're in like another heightened time where it's just and you know, but it's it's been really constant. I mean, I just I came across some quote from like the 1940s or something that just said something it was something like it was someone in in Los Angeles that said like if you want to sell something just like slap the word California on it so it's it's this myth that we really don't want to let go of and I don't know if I mean I'm sure having the movie industry here helps a lot because we're constantly showing people pictures you know these very edited art directed images of the city Mm -hmm. but I will say that you know despite the traffic and the smog I mean, I still find it a place that's incredibly easy to access um, a, a kind of wildness if you want to. And that's quite, ex- having lived in other cities, that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. All right. Well, we could talk to you about this forever. I think we <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed this book. We've been speaking with Lyra Kilston, author of Sunseekers, The Cure of California. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Lyra. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.